Good morning, church. Last time I was up here, I think it was about seven months ago, that should tell you something about the preaching that I deliver. <laughs> I don't know what it says. However, uh, it's good to be up here again. It's good to be delivering the message for you today. Uh, within those seven months, so, uh, many of you guys probably know Faith and I, we suffered a loss in our family. Uh, and it wasn't our first loss, um, but not being the first didn't make it easier. It actually made it quite more difficult. And as for my healing, as for my recovering and, and coping with that, I'd say I'm still in the process. However, what's been a tremendous help for me has been the power of God's word through these trying times. You see, it's not just the verses or the passages that I see in God's word that's about hope, although those definitely help. It's also the passages that meet me where I am in my suffering, in my struggles, in my anguish. And so last week, as Pastor Kyle was talking about the introduction of the Psalms, we know that there are Psalms that are about happiness and joy and rejoicing. And still there are passages, there are Psalms about depression, sadness, grieving, mourning, about anguish and pain. And so that leads us to what this message is about today. The message is struggling well, and we find that in the Psalm 73. And so as you turn to that, actually don't turn to it yet, I'm going to pray. And so bow your heads with me. Being in the presence of our King, Father, we invite you here. We thank you that we are all here. We get to celebrate your goodness. We get to sing songs of your praise. And yet, Father, we know that as we come here, we're not always happy. We're not always in this period of joy. And though some of us are, and that's an amazing blessing, Father, I pray that you just remind our hearts today how to struggle well, how to hold on to you and cling to you through the storms of life. God, we thank you for your gentleness and your love, your patience and your mercy. And we thank you for your word that speaks to us today. In your mighty name, amen. So, Psalm 73, now you can start turning to it. It's written by a man named Asaph. Now, Asaph, he was a worship leader. He was a prophet uh, during the time of David. So if you're curious about their story, you can look into the books of Samuel and Chronicles. But the thing about Asaph, in particular with this psalm, is that Asaph has a clear problem. Within the 28 verses of the psalm, the first 16, uh, first 16 verses details those problems. He shares with us his thoughts, his anguish. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that before we get into the solution. The solution is the last 12 verses of this psalm. 
and we'll talk about that. And so let's focus on each parts individually. First, let us read verses 1 to 16. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. And I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. The reason why I love this psalm so much is because of the honesty that it gives. I think oftentimes we look at scripture or we think of uh, reading the Bible and we have this expectation of what we receive during Sunday school where everything is happy, everyone is good and blessed. We seem to miss out on these moments where this worship leader, this prophet, a man that you might come to expect to have it all, the full abundance and presence of God, and yet here we read his personal thoughts, his struggles, his heartache. Before we dive into Asaph's problem, I first wanted to highlight an aspect of Scripture that I really appreciate. You see, the power in God's Word is not just that it's true. It is true. You can trust what it says. It is bulletproof. But a large part of the power of God's word is also in how honest the Bible is. God is not shy of our human experience. The Bible doesn't caricaturize our human experience, the highs and lows. We get it in full blast. And we get a lot of this honesty here in this psalm. It's a wonderful thing. I really am grateful reading this psalm because what it tells me is that God is, he doesn't wince at our doubts, our struggles. He doesn't get squeamish when we doubt, when our faith wavers, when we are shaken. He doesn't hide away 
the emotions of his people. And there's something to be said here because I know from what people told me and from experience that the Christian community has had a bad history of shame culture. I know this as well. All my life I've been in the Filipino church and so every time someone does something scandalous or someone is ashamed or someone is uh, insecure, we hide it away because there's this failed notion that the church is only for smiles. And yet what we have here is the worship leader, a prophet, a man who hears from God being honest, writing it as a song. The reality is the church is as much a house of worship as it is a spiritual hospital. One of the churches that I was able to be a part of uh, while I was in Bible school was this tiny, small church. We never grew any bigger than 10. It doesn't mean that people didn't pass through because in the three years that we were operating, what seemed to happen is that people would come in, they would have deep, deep spiritual troubles, and then as soon as they are counseled, confided in, and as soon as they are healed, they leave. And that's not a bad thing. But that's also not something that's confined in a small church of 10. This Christian community that we have, we need to be honest. Scripture is honest about the human experience so that we may be honest about it as well. When Jesus is confronted as he's, as he's um, fellowshipping with with tax collectors and prostitutes, what does he say? He is a doctor. Not for the well, but for the unwell. And these weren't just non-believers. These were people living in the community that believe in God, who are just living in wayward places, who are going through afflictions in their life. Jesus is talking about people who have clear problems and he's there for them does this mean that every person should be spilling their guts over to anybody in the church some people chuckled no <laughs> right that's what we have leaders for that's what we have care groups for if you don't have a care group you should join one because care groups in this church does a wonderful thing in which you have a community of brothers and sisters in christ who support you we have rooms in this church exactly for the kind of fellowship that you need if you're going through struggles in life asaph knows as much as this he talks about how if he says this in front of the congregation, he will have disserviced God's children. So there's a time and place for being honest and for confession of your heart. However, as we use our discretion, that doesn't mean we never talk about these things. You see, I truly believe that until the people of God are honest about themselves and one another, 
they leave a lot of God's power on the floor. Left to be picked up, available for anybody. Until we are candid with one another, just as scripture is candid with us. There's a lot of God's power that is just not being used by us. And so that's just the first thing I wanted us to talk about because it's something that I really appreciate that we can go to scripture and it's not just you got to pick yourself up from the boost traps. It's not just that's tough, you know, soldier on. It's not just flowery poetry. It's not just tough it out machismo. We see this honest, raw uh, vulnerability in Scripture that allows us to also open ourselves up to one another and to God. And so we have this beautiful piece of Scripture. We have this psalm from Asaph. The first thing that we need to do is we need to identify Asaph's problem. The first thing that we can learn from Psalm 73 about struggling well is to identify the problem. This is part of honesty as well. When you look at the psalm at first glance, you might think pretty simple, right? He sees the evil people flourishing. He sees the good people of God failing. He sees that the people of the world who are non-believers are winners. He sees the people of God who are trying their best to be virtuous, to be good and faithful as losers. And that is troubling his heart. Apologetics today, we call that the problem of evil, right? The problem of evil goes like this is that if God was all-powerful, if God was all-loving and all-good and just, then there shouldn't be any evil in this world. But obviously, when you look out the church doors, even sometimes within the church doors, there is obviously evil out in this world. And so, as the problem of evil suggests, if there is evil in this world, then there can't be an all-loving, all-just, all-good God. In Asaph's own words, he would say, why does the good suffer while the evil people prosper? And he even adds, surely my faith is in vain. But this isn't the first and only place that we see the problem of evil emerge. I think this is something that, um, it's a problem, it's, it's a dilemma that is common among believers and non-believers. And the reason why it's so common is because of the reality of the world we live in. We see brokenness. We see fallenness. We feel rage for injustice. We feel heartache for loss. But I think that's also why this problem is so daunting. Because at first glance, you might think, oh, the problem of evil. Oh, apologetics. That's a problem of philosophy and logic and theology. And thinking that way makes this problem difficult. Why? Because the problem of evil is so often not about philosophy. It's not about the right answers. So oftentimes, it's not about a problem of the head 
It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the heart. We see this in the book of Job elsewhere, just before the book of Psalms. We see this in the book of Job, where Job is happy. He has this big family. Everything in life you could want, he has. And to top it all off, Scripture describes him as blameless. Nowhere else except for Jesus does Scripture describe someone as blameless. So blameless, Job would even sacrifice to God on behalf of other people, right? His blamelessness is, is enough. He has time to worry about other folks. But what happens to Job? In just one small chapter, he loses everything. Loses his family, loses his wealth. His wife spits on him, curses him. He's in the streets naked and alone and with boils all over his body. And for 35 of the 42 chapters in the book of Job, what do we see? Job, see, Job has to go through and he has to endure his friends, trying to explain to him why philosophically, why theologically, he deserves to suffer this way. When in reality, Job didn't need good arguments. Job didn't need the logic that his friends provided. Even though sometimes I would look at the arguments from his friends and I would think, oh, I've heard that in church before. I would look at their arguments and I would think, you know what, that's not such a bad idea. I've thought of that before. Putting aside that his friends were wrong, that wasn't what Job needed. Because his problem, just like Asaph, is not one of the mind, it's not one of intellect, it's one of the heart. You see, oftentimes we ask the question, why? Why does this happen? And I, there's this song, one of my favorite quotes come from this song by Mercy Me. It's, it's the song, Heard in the Healer. And it's actually the first verse of the song, and it goes like this. It says, why? The question that is never far away, but healing doesn't come from the explained. Which is to say that in reality, explanations don't heal us from the pain of our struggles. And we know this in a physical way. I've, said, I've, I've told this to the youth. Like imagine if I smacked you in the back of the head really hard. And you ask me why. Why did you do that, AJ? I'm going to get you fired. <laughs> and I said, oh, I saw a mosquito. So I just smacked you in the head really bad. Make sure it's dead. Does that make you all of a sudden grateful? No. Does that make, you, does that make the pain go away any quicker? Does that make the bump in your noggin smaller in any way? No, even if the explanation is good, nobody likes mosquitoes. I've never met someone who does. Even if the explanation is really good, even if you can appreciate the explanation, it doesn't help with the healing. 
And so you have Asaph, you have Job asking, why is this happening to me in my life? You have each and every one of us, I know it's so common, it's so natural, that when we go through tragedies in life, we ask the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this thing? Haven't I done enough for you, God? Why is it me? Why is it us? But the healing doesn't come from explanations. Verses 13, 14, and 16 are very much connected in this way. The anguish that Asaph is experiencing and suffering has taken such possession of his mind that he can't find the answers to his questions. It's taken such a forefront in his sight that he can't see anything else, even if it is so obvious to him. You see, the church has an explanation for the problem of evil. But as we discussed, it's, it's not the explanations that bring healing. And so what's the solution? How do we heal? How does God guide us through our troubles? We read onward from verses 17. That is until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and I was ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you take me into glory. God, who do I have in heaven but you? The earth is nothing I de- has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. Do you know why I know his problem was not an intellectual one? It was one of the heart. He describes it right here. It was Not until I entered the sanctuary of God. That's when I understood. You see, God's solution wasn't the secrets of the universe. Although, of course, we would like to know that as well. But his solution to Asaph's problem, to those anyone who is going through trying times, the solution is in our heart. God targeted Asaph's heart, and this is the same with with Job, by giving him his presence. God's presence in our lives brings more healing than any other answer we could find. His presence in our lives helps us through struggles, 
better than any other kind of therapy, any other kind of counseling we may receive. It's his presence that helps sustain us. This is what Job, Job received when he was lying in the streets with boils all over his head. He received God's presence. And it didn't take 35 chapters for him to heal from that. When Asaph entered into God's presence, it brought clarity to his mind that when he was so focused on his struggles, he was blind to. And yet the moment he steps forward into God's presence, into his midst, it all became clear. He began to understand. He even began to reorient his perspective so that no longer was he jealous of the prosperity of those around him. He came to understand that any kind of earthly gain is worthless in, comparisons, in comparison to God's presence. Worthless. And that his struggles were worth being near God. To be near God is good for me. Asaph closes with that. And so God's presence... Pretty simple. That's the solution. And I could, I could dismiss everyone here and, and I wouldn't be wrong. However, God's presence is also tricky to explain. Because how do we know we're in his presence? How do we get into, how do we enter into God's presence? It's not quite as simple. Why? Because God's presence is something that you can feel. However, just because you don't feel it doesn't mean you're not in it. Tricky. <laughs> God's presence isn't confined to one place. However, there are definitely places, there are definitely better places than others. I wouldn't recommend you go clubbing to find God's presence. While at the same time, it doesn't mean that you can't find God <laughs> in the club. God's presence isn't just a place that you go to in your time of need. While at the same time, his presence is the perfect place to go to in your time of need. And so it's very tricky. When we talk about God's presence, it's not so easy to gauge whether we're in there or we're not. There's this poem. And this poem, you've probably seen it. Either it's framed in your wall or it's framed in some of your relatives' walls. Maybe you've seen it on your Facebook feed once in a while. It's a very famous poem. I encountered it very young in life. It's called the footprints in the sand. Does anyone know this poem? The footprints of the, in the sand goes this way. There's this man who's, who is he's just passed away and, and he's viewing his life as a journey, as a walk on the beach. And walking alongside him is God. 
And so as the man turns back, he notices that during the times of hardship and struggle, there was only one set of footprints. And the man thinking, well, God, why would you leave me in my times of need? God corrects him and says, no, it was in those times I was carrying you. And so that's a mic drop for a lot of us. This very impactful, so much so that people frame it on the walls of their home. It's hard for us to gauge whether we're in God's presence or not. And that's okay. That's fine. I remember reading uh, a story about, uh, what's her name? Mother Teresa, where we all know Mother Teresa. She opened up orphanages across the world. She was known as a a saint by the Catholic Church. And when they opened up her journals, they found something surprising. That only in one point of her life did she hear God speak to her. It was when she was eight. And throughout the rest of her life, she struggled to find that voice again. And yet, that struggle didn't prevent her from from diving right into what God has called her. It's still telling us that Even the people who dedicate their lives completely and wholly to God can struggle with feeling connected to Him. And that's okay. It's hard to explain. It's hard to say what, how to do this. I was talking to Dan right before the service and and he said something. He reminded me of something that's very true. Some people, they try to... uh, They try to work God like an equation, right? If I go to this one room and I get on my knees and I play this one song and I recite this verse, that's when I'll feel God's presence. As if God is an equation that you put one plus two and it equals three every time. But since God is a person and he is alive, it means that our connectedness with him isn't a result of a force in nature. It's a result of relationship. So even if it's hard for us to gauge his presence, there are things that we can do that open us up to receiving his presence. When I look through scripture, when I try to take advice on how to pursue God and how to to enter into his presence, I look to the book of Acts. Because the early church, they were a people who struggled a lot. They suffered scrutiny from the government. They suffered persecution from family and friends. They were seen as disgusting by the rest of the world. And yet, all throughout, they had this holy dependence on God. And what's beautiful about the early church is that they weren't all apostles. We like to think that, you know, we're here and the apostles are here. And so what they do, we can't hope to live up to that. And so they have a connectedness with God that we can never achieve. However, when I read through the early church, I see a lot of poor people. I see a lot of rich people. 
I see a lot of people who don't know the Bible very well. I see a lot of people who knew the Bible exceptionally well. And yet their common denominator was that holy dependence on Jesus. No matter where they came from, you know what I saw in their pursuit of God's presence? I saw a lot of prayer. I saw a lot of Bible study. I saw a lot of fellowship. I know for Faith and I, when we experienced our loss, fellowship, even though it might not have been what I wanted, fellowship really helped us through our struggles. There's a lot of confession. There's a lot of serving other people. You see, these things that we've now come to call today as spiritual disciplines are called disciplines because they're not necessarily easy to do. But they're there to build our hearts. They're there to connect us with God in a way that otherwise we might not be so open to his presence. And it's something that we understand. Yes, it's hard to do. That's why we call it a discipline. And yet it's so good for us. I liken it to washing dishes. And I think I've used this example before, but I'll dig it in again. You know, when I wash the dishes, that to me is, is like an act of love to my wife, right? It's not a big one. I'm not saying it's a big one. But it's an act of love. Not because if I don't wash the dishes, she won't love me. Not because washing the dishes is some kind of huge gesture. But I, and it's not because I love it, because let's be honest, nobody loves washing dishes, right? I do it because it brings me closer to her in a way that not washing the dishes will, will create a gap. You guys are laughing, so I, I know I don't, you don't have to try this out, right? Gang, do an experiment at home. Don't wash the dishes for a week. You'll see the kind of gap it creates between you and your family. We laugh about this, but that's the spiritual disciplines to a T. Are we earning God's love? No. Are we earning his presence? Are we trying to be worthy when we read the Bible? No. But it opens us up to his presence. The problem isn't that God's presence has many barriers. I think it's the opposite. I think we put forth many barriers that prevent us from entering God's presence. When I look at the Garden of Eden, it wasn't God that was hiding. It was Adam and it was Eve. And so this pursuit of God, we have it in Scripture. We know what it looks like. We know what we can do to better orient ourselves towards Him who can bring us healing, towards His presence that is all that we need here on earth. It's these spiritual disciplines. We've seen what prayer can do. We've seen the power of God's word. For me, fasting was always a dodgy spiritual discipline. 
For a long time, I thought, I don't need to fast. I can get close to God however I want, you know? And yet, when I plugged it into my weekly routine earlier this year, and I started fasting, I came to realize its great value. It was less about, I don't need fasting because I can get close to God. It was more about, I just want to keep eating food, right? Am I the only one here? I love food. I think that's a characteristic we all share in the West. <laughs> it's not, it, it was that more than the need for it. Because the great value from fasting was that I was constantly reminded of God's presence every time I was hungry, every time I whiffed a smell of that good food, every time I saw the clock ticking to when it would end. These would be moments that I had to dedicate in obedience to God. And it brought me closer to him. And so it's not even just the things that we do, it's the things that we can abstain from, the things that we can sacrifice for him that, uh, that bring us into the trajectory of entering his presence. But it's not just in times of struggle that these disciplines are hard. I think oftentimes in times of bounty, of joy, Following your disciplines can be even harder. How many of us bring our Bibles, not counting your phones, to vacation? How many of us pray during celebrations with all of our friends? You see, entering God's presence, as we talked about, it's not just in our time of need. Well, I mean, in truth, we always need him but it's also in the times where we think we're fine. Sometimes that's why gauging his presence is so hard when we use feelings. But that is what heals us. That is what helps us get through the hard times in life. The last thing from Psalm 73 uh, that I want to talk about and that helps us struggle well and this too requires God's providence, is that we need to judge our moral senses based on what God says, rather than judging God based on what our moral senses say. I'll say that again. We need to judge our moral senses based on what God says, rather than judge God based on what our moral senses say. You see, when we get into that kind of dark place that Asaph was experiencing, the enemy uses those moments to turn us away from God, to keep us angry at him, to keep us dejected and disconnected. Because what we do is oftentimes we'll, we'll look at the injustice in the world and we'll, we'll judge God based off of that. That's the problem of evil. That's the trap of that question is that you're judging God on what you think is how the world should be. When instead we should be the ones who are adjusting our moral sense to what God says. It's in that way, by humbling 
what we think is right, what we think should be, is that we can heal. It's a prerequisite almost to entering his presence. That we say, God, you know what's right better than I. You know what the future holds. You are better in control than I am. You have it all in the bag where I really don't know anything at all. And so we read this psalm and to take from it the ability to struggle well, but also the ability to celebrate well, to seek God's presence in all moments of our lives for healing, for empowerment, for guidance. Asaph knows that better than any of us because he was able to enter into that place and receive what he needed. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your presence is not confined to one place. That your sacrifice on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ, has torn the veil and made available to us the abundance of your grace, your love, and your mercy. We thank you that we don't have to perform to receive you, but that you're seeking us out as you did in the garden. We thank you because we're not worthy. And yet, in your love, you pursue us. So I pray, Father, you give us the strength to pursue you as well. Give us the wisdom. Give us the insight to, uh, to read psalms like these and to grow from it. In your mighty name, amen.